Hello and welcome back, listener. You are listening to My Surrogacy Journey, the podcast season two. It's lovely to be back in the studio with you all, and you have the pleasure of both Michael and I and one of our guests, which is set to be a really insightful episode that can affect all of us. This season's sponsor is the wonderful team at Hearts and Essex Fertility Centre. And we love the team at Hearts and Essex Fertility Centre. We do. They take immense pride in providing medical services of the highest calibre, tailored to suit the individual needs of each patient. In a friendly, supportive, inclusive and caring environment, Hearts and Essex Fertility Centre is a leading surrogacy clinic and was awarded Surrogacy Fertility Clinic of the Year in 2008 and 2022. We are talking all about embryo creation and all of the components that go into it. So we're going to be talking science. We're going to be talking all about the lab and all of the prep work. And we have a very special guest in the studio with us. We do. And to tell us about it all today, we have the lovely Dr. Lucy Richardson from Hearts and Essex Fertility Centre. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. And yourselves? Yes. We are good. And I'm really looking forward to this episode because I get asked lots and lots and lots of questions about embryo creation generally. And I think people who embark on a surrogacy journey, particularly same-sex male couples or single Mm. people who haven't had prior, you know, fertility experience through a journey, like some of our heterosexual members, they really don't understand the process. And I think if we can use this episode to try and help people build their knowledge prior to you know starting and embarking on their journey I think it's going to give them a better understanding of the time frames it's mm-hmm. going to give them a better understanding of just the general process involved but also this is science right this is yeah. these are some of the things that there's no guarantees with this and I think that's sometimes really difficult mm-hmm. for people to wrap their head around yeah absolutely and I think we all come to this particular point when we're creating embryos and just like Wes said some of us will have pro knowledge and and maybe have been through IVF already and have experienced unsuccessful treatment and then you know some of us will be completely blue eyed and excited and eager to go but again have no prior knowledge or idea but i also think that sometimes i speak to heterosexual members who actually have been through quite a lengthy fertility journey and still have some questions or still have to educate themselves about elements of that journey that they they didn't realize. Lucy, tell us about you and give us a bit of an insight to who you are, where you come from and what do you do? So I'm um, the laboratory director at Hearts and Essex Fertility Centre. I've been with the clinic since 2013 and I've got over 20 years of experience in both clinical and uh, research embryology. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at University College London in anatomy and developmental biology and then I went on to do my PhD at the University of Cambridge in embryology under Professor Magdalena Janitska-Gertz who is um, quite a well-known figure. My passion really is embryology and it has been for a very quite a young age when I was in my teens I spent some time at the National Institute for Medical Research in a stem cell lab And at the time, I thought I was doing all sorts of high-tech, amazing science. Um, Literally, I was just pipetting bits of water and stuff about. But um, (laughs) what blew my mind was that you could have a single cell that had the potential to become anything. And if you think about what we are, us sitting here today, we've come from a sperm and an egg that have joined together, undergone the most incredible transformation to become you and I and that even now it sounds a bit of a cliche it still blows my mind 
um, that one egg and one sperm, that particular combination of that egg and that sperm has made me who I am. Mm-hmm. It is mind-blowing. It is. When you, when you, <laughs> you don't often think about it, do you? Let's be honest. No. When you explain it like that, you're like, wowzers. And, and, and then what then happens and what goes on is, you know, on that process to, to create a baby is just mind-blowing. Is. The embryologist plays such a massive part of people's journeys, mm-hmm. and and it's they're the one person or people that actually make the whole process possible. So, kind of going into that, why don't you, Lucy, just give us a bit of an overview? What is the role of an embryologist? My job in the lab is to look after your eggs, look after your sperm, look after your embryos, put the sperm and the eggs together to create a fertilised egg and then go on and grow my fertilised egg into an embryo. We predominantly culture embryos um, to the blastocyst stage, which is day five and day six of their development. At that point, we are looking at making decisions as to which embryo has the most potential to give rise to a pregnancy, either through um, a a fresh embryo transfer or a freezing technique, uh, which is vitrification. That's a fast freezing technique. We can freeze embryos, but also eggs, sperm for fertility preservation, uh, whether that be an elective or a decision that you wanted to preserve your fertility for the future or whether it was through a medical necessity. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a very full on job, but it's incredibly rewarding mm-hmm. um, and it really is the best job in the world. Oh, be a, a lot, a lot of responsibility. So much responsibility. Yeah. Do you, I've always wondered actually, because I guess of the work that we do and the amount of embryologists and people like you that we speak to, mm-hmm. do you build relationships with patients or are you often the talent behind the scenes? Do you know what? It's, it's, very, it's funny. <laughs> this morning I had a WhatsApp from one of my patients inviting me to a party to welcome his new daughter in, no into way. the world. Yeah, so, no. How funny. Uh, yeah. And that was not planned to ask you that. <laughs> so yeah, massively. My patients are incredibly important to me and I have formed some really strong bonds and really strong friendships. Oh, I was and hoping I think you'd say that. The lady who did the catering for my son's christening has a little daughter created by Pixie at Hearts and Essex. The woman who did my um, wedding flowers also has a little daughter from wow. Hearts and Essex. So <laughs> it's, you know, I am really, really blessed by the relationships that I, I build with my patients. And that for me is one of the beautiful things about Hearts and Essex is that it's the type of environment where you can do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I started my career in a very, very busy London clinic where it was, you know, patients were coming through the door really rapidly. You didn't really get to know mm-hmm. their story so far. You were there, you know, quite rightly, I was processing the samples, processing their gametes and their embryos and their eggs. You didn't really get to know the them. Patient. Whereas at Hearts and Essex, that is something that's so important to to all of us really in in the clinic in that you are a person um you have had a a story so far been on a journey and we want to know what the next part of that journey is going to be for you so yeah literally this morning i had a a party invite (laughs) good that's good so you touched on a minute ago when doing some studying and Mm -hmm that light bulb moment of I want to be an embryologist because you know I always wonder how do people figure out that that's the career for them because Mm -hmm. being so niche what was that standout moment where embryology for you was what you had to do um obviously 
I had my experience working in the lab in my teens. And then when I went on to go to university, my degree was anatomy and developmental biology. But for me, it was the development aspect that was just mind blowing. Every single aspect of it really just fascinated me. Um, So I started off at university initially looking at how limbs develop. And then when I did my PhD, I was looking at how an embryo knows which cell is going to be a head cell and which is a a tail cell. So basically the the head toe axis or anterior posterior patterning. And I identified a region within the embryo that instructs that decision that it's so it's the signaling center which tells the cells what they're going to become and managed to track it to much earlier stages in development than was previously known um, which was pretty cool Um, but everything about embryology fascinated me but I went away from the research aspect because I wanted to help people because I wanted to use my skills clinically to make a difference to people's lives as much as the research was absolutely fascinating we did all sorts of really cool experiments I wanted to be able to make a difference to people wow Lucy talk to us about if if the listener is going through a journey whether they're creating embryos as a same-sex couple or they're creating them as a hetero couple or single what interaction would uh, a set of intended parents typically have with an embryologist if they've got to the point of fertilization? Mm-hmm. Just quickly talk us through that pattern, because I know a lot of people are unsure about it, but you know, like the day one today, or is it day zero to day five? Mm-hmm. So different clinics do operate slightly differently, and, and at Hearts and Essex, I'm very lucky in that we do have a lot of interaction with our patients. Um, so on the day of an egg collection, after we have performed the method of fertilization, whether it's through conventional insemination or IVF or whether it's through a more um, invasive method such as ICSI or PIXI which is where we're injecting sperm directly into the eggs we will call the patients and give them an update let them know how the process has been what the sperm parameters were like on the day what we have in terms of egg numbers and then talk them through what the anticipated outcomes will be so what an average fertilization rate will be the risks of the procedure which sadly would be the risk that it it failed to fertilize and then give them guidance as to how much interaction and when we're going to be contacting them so the following day after we've done our procedure in the laboratory we check our eggs for fertilization so at that point we then give the um, the patients another call let them know what we have in terms of numbers and then confirm for them the plan moving forward whether that would be continued culture for a transfer or perhaps um, can continued culture for freezing um, or storage, whether we were performing any additional processes alongside that treatment cycle, such as genetic testing of the embryos, mm-hmm. and guide the patients accordingly. The patients have complete access to us in the lab, so they can contact us at any time point. We use a um, secure messaging service that we can contact the patients with. So if it's a bit difficult for them to talk, if they're at work or, you know, we can interact through the the messaging portal or directly um, speaking to the patients on the phone. Um, When the patients then come back in for embryo transfer, we'll have time to talk through how the cycle's gone, what we have in terms of embryo availability, whether there's any freezing, whether we're looking at transferring one or possibly two or in very rare circumstances, up to three embryos and help guide the patients accordingly with that decision-making process. Mm -hmm. 
you touched on a really good point there in terms of like double or triple embryo transfer. Mm-hmm. In a case for patina you know, surrogacy, yeah. what's the likelihood of, of doing a double or double embryo transfer? Generally, we will be recommending a single embryo transfer. We know that transferring one embryo on its own, if the quality is good, is the most appropriate way of achieving a live birth, a healthy live birth outcome. And that's what we're aiming for. We can, according to our governing body, transfer up to two embryos uh, from eggs that were created by somebody that was under 40. But really, that is going to increase the risk of a multiple pregnancy, particularly if the embryo quality is good. Multiple pregnancies are more difficult pregnancies and more risky pregnancies, both for the lady and potentially for any babies born as a result of that treatment. So wherever appropriate, we will always recommend a single embryo transfer. I get asked it a lot and yeah, I think you know when I talk to people it's like it's all about assessing risk and it's mm. about whether the clinic has the ability to be able to do that and, and I think it's by you know looked on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And particularly if you you know we we're in a position where we have excellent results with our frozen embryos so if we are in a position where we have embryos uh, left over for freezing then there really is no reason to transfer more than one um, embryo on a cycle. You also said something which was really interesting, and that was talking to patients about those ratios. So Mm -hmm. from an egg collection, then fertilisation. Firstly, I can imagine you're all really excited to get into work to see the results Mm -hmm. of the previous day's work. Absolutely. But again, another question that we get a lot, don't we, Wes, is... 12 eggs are collected, you know, statistically, where am I going to be? Yeah. What is really important that we counsel the patients to understand is that throughout the treatment cycle, there will be a progressive drop down in numbers. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if you're not prepared for that, that can be difficult um, to receive that information. So when a lady is stimulating, um, we are looking at um, the growth of the follicles. So these are the structures within the ovary that potentially will contain an egg. It's very common that you will have fewer eggs collected then you have follicles that's completely normal when we are looking at our eggs themselves not all of them will be able to fertilize so an egg must be mature in order to fertilize we'd anticipate around about 80 percent of eggs will be mature but not all of them and not all of the time so we may have an unexpected drop down in numbers from that point after we've put the sperm and the eggs together again we're not expecting all of our eggs to fertilize so we'll be looking at around about 65 70 percent to fertilize again it can be higher sometimes all of our eggs will fertilize but the risk is still there that none of them will once we've seen that we've got eggs that have fertilized not every fertilized egg is able to go on and develop and divide so again we're dropping down in numbers there and if we're culturing onto the blastocyst stage, there is a risk that none of the embryos will get there. There's an important transition um, between the way that the embryo develops um, that happens on around about day three of development, where the embryonic genome has to switch on. Not every embryo is able to How switch on their genome. So again, we are going to be losing and dropping down in numbers. So if you know we're starting off with 10 eggs just because the maths is slightly simpler (laughs) we'd be then looking at say eight suitable for treatment of those eight maybe six that have fertilized of those six maybe three that get to the blastocyst stage Mm -hmm. of which maybe one is good quality Mm. but you only need that one you do you do but that's really important because you know it's it's one of the I think it's really important to prepare yourself for treatment and to be psychologically 
in the zone and 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 clinically aware of what the process because as you said it's it's such a mammoth what what the cells have to do in that process it is and i think particularly if you are a same-sex male couple who are looking to split the yeah. eggs yes. both fertilize and have embryos to be able to look at future yeah. children that is always a tough one yes uh, and i think also sometimes you know some intended parents they get really low numbers and they see that as a failure mm -hmm. and and absolutely i understand that but i think the biggest takeaway for me on you know what you've just talked about lucy is that there's no correlation to eggs collected versus and there's no stats is that that gets so that if you get this amount of eggs you're going to get this amount of no. embryos there's so many factors of you as you've just described and then, and also genetic uh, compatibility as yeah. well isn't there you know I that mean, plays a massive part in, yeah. in that as much as you know, we are approaching this with science and medicine, it's nature. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is inherent to itself. And you, you, you know, you cannot control that as much. So much. Exactly, exactly. You know, I, I, I know that I can put a normal looking sperm with an egg. I know that I can do my processes and my procedures to the very, very highest of standards. But if that egg and that sperm don't interact overnight in the correct way to achieve fertilization, I can't fix that. Yeah, no. yeah. And I think if there's one thing that the listener takes away from this episode is particularly the, all of the components that you just walked through, Lucy, is the terms of there's so many factors that are going to impact the numbers. It's not mm. like there's just one or two factors. There's so many yeah. factors. And I think that's what people need to bear in mind when they mm -hmm. do start this process that, you know, only getting a low number of embryos isn't a failure. It's, you know, it's a success. You've got you've got embryos that are Absolutely. at blastocyst stage. But I think it's about managing your expectation. Yeah. You know, sometimes when you work with donors and you know their previous donation history and they might have got you know retrieved 20 20 eggs which is a great number mm. you know and and they might have had you know with the previous intended parents they've worked with had a, a, a high blastocyst number but for them it, they might have a low one and it is it is very different and it's all mm. about yeah. all of the different components and, and we always talk about it with Tallulah with our daughter and our donor that we had for Tallulah we were told that that donor would only produce sort of four or five eggs and and that's exactly what she produced mm -hmm. and then you know three of those fertilized and they all became blastocysts and we transferred one and, and we got Tallulah. So our numbers started off very low, yeah. but the clinic had an understanding of how those eggs performed yeah. in the lab. So they, mm. they said that she didn't produce a large quantity of eggs, but her quality was really, really good. Yeah, yeah. Is that the type of things that you see? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are certain circumstances where you will find that a high number of eggs will be produced, but that doesn't guarantee that the quality of them will be good. Mm -hmm. um, that's really, really important. Um, the age of the donor is important, as well as a ovarian reserve, which would give us an indication of how many eggs we're likely to recover from the donor or from the, from the woman. But it doesn't necessarily correlate. That's why it's so important that we do have that interaction with our patients or our intended parents so that we can inform them, mm -hmm. counsel them. Mm -hmm. Because if you understand that having one blastocyst it doesn't mean it, as you say, it's a failure. It doesn't mean it's a bad result. Actually, it's a fantastic result because you've got that one blastocyst. Provided that you are aware and you're understanding, it can make your journey very different. And that's really important really as well. Important. Yeah. Really and, important. and if I think back to all of the intended parents that I've worked with who have been creating embryos, 
there is such an array of differences. You know, mm. you have su- you have I've from got, an understanding point. No, but just in terms of their numbers point yeah. of view okay. and, and, w- and what they achieve. You know, I've got some uh, IPs, same sex male, who've both got like eight or nine embryos each. Mm-hmm. Where again, I've got I've got some IPs where w- one one IP's got one and the other one's got two. And there's this big thing as well, isn't there, Lucy? And, and I'm going to throw this into you. But there's there's so many embryos in tanks that have just got no. You're never going to use them. So mm-hmm. I think. When you're at the start of your you journey, it, you do. You? It's all about it's a numbers game, isn't it? Right, and it's yeah. about giving you the best chance of success. And there's this perception that having this high volume of embryos is going to give you that best chance of success. And there is some rationale behind that. But mm. also, we're a prime example. I've got five embryos in the tank at a <sighs> clinic. Michael's got two. Two. You know, there's a chance we're probably going to use hopefully another one of those. But mm. then I'm going to have all these embryos yeah. that I'm not going to use. You know, yeah. so it is about a shift in mindset about success and yeah. it doesn't always mean you know high volumes of of embryos but then on the flip side we have IPs who have, have burnt through embryos time after time yeah. what I'm trying to say here is it's the unknown and and nothing is a failure as long as you've got enough to be able to move forward and, mm-hmm. and you know start or complete a journey and have a clinic that supports that and you know makes you aware of that right from the get-go to support you through it because it's it is a difficult journey to navigate and Mm -hmm. if you don't have a backbone of a of a good clinic or a good agency supporting you throughout it Mm -hmm. then it can become a much more difficult journey that first five days is so stressful i remember receiving the calls at work Mm -hmm. and you know you've got to take you know if you if you don't if your clinic doesn't use an app you know you had i had to take a call and and it's you know, it's that roll of the dice, you know, what's happened overnight. And yeah. then, you know, off you go to go and carry on with your daily work, you yeah. know, depending what news you've just been given. Yeah. That first five days is just key to, yeah. to make sure you're getting the support from somewhere. Yeah. I mean, so at Hearts and Essex, we use something called continuous closed culture, which means once we've checked our eggs for fertilization, they go back in the incubator. And if we're transferring at the blastocyst stage or freezing at the blastocyst stage, they stay there undisturbed. So we're not taking them out we're not checking them on a daily basis because we know taking them out satisfies a bit of curiosity absolutely we can give the patients that information but ultimately if we're aiming for a blastocyst transfer it doesn't matter necessarily how many cells we've got on day two or day three because it's what happens at the end result so for our patients bless them we tell them how many we've got fertilized and then they put their trust in us yeah. that we're doing the best for the patients which obviously we absolutely are but that's it's a very scary experience because yeah. then you won't hear until no. towards the end of the whether you're day five or day six correct yeah. and there are, there, there, are, there are there's often a lag isn't there with some of them are a bit slow developing and yep. it will move into day six yeah yeah absolutely not every embryo will necessarily get to the blastocyst stage on day five so although we would choose to perform transfer on day five we may find you know i'm saying to a patient we've got one good embryo to go back for you i've got some that are at early stages of blastocyst formation they're not where i need them to be for freezing just yet the next day we could be having a different conversation in that they're there now yeah they're just a bit mm. lazy <laughs> that is definitely what happened to one of ours for sure yeah but I, I hear it all the time and the IPs that get quite worried and I'm like yeah. this is quite normal, normal. some of yeah. them lag behind they just take a little bit longer yeah. but the team uh, in the lab are going to kind of guide you yeah. guide yeah. you on that um, I guess this is a nice segue to talk about testing and yep. what those options look like and the acronyms seem to be changing constantly mm-hmm. it was PGS and PGD talk to us about 
the testing options that are available for your embryos. Okay, so as you say, the acronyms do change. Um, so PGS was pre-implantation genetic screening is now called PGTA, which is pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. What that technique does, it looks for the number of chromosomes within a cell. So we know that there needs to be a certain number of chromosomes in a cell. And if an embryo has that, it's called euploid. That means normal. If it has the wrong number of chromosomes, it's called aneuploid or abnormal. Aneuploidy itself doesn't necessarily mean that you wouldn't go on to have a live birth. For example, um, a type of aneuploidy is Down syndrome. Okay. Okay. But there are other types of aneuploidies that would result in either an embryo not implanting or a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. So PGTA is a method of screening embryos to look for ones that have the correct number of chromosomes. This is an embryo selection technique, whereas PGD, which was pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, is now termed either PGTM or PGTSR. Wow. And these are looking at single gene disorders for the case of PGTM. For example, if you have a family history of a genetic disorder, if, say, you have the BRCA gene mm -hmm. um, and you are predisposed to either breast or ovarian um, cancers, PGTM is a method that can screen those embryos to identify which ones would carry that particular fault. So fascinating. And be used as a, a method to eliminate the possible transmission of a, a single gene disorder. PGTSR is looking at inversions or duplications or deletions of chromosomes that can prevent healthy embryonic development. Um, so again, a method to screen out a particular risk for your pregnancy. That is mind-blowing, actually. It really is. You know, when I didn't understand all of that. I didn't realise it was all of that. You know, it's mm -hmm. just... It is, and I think most people don't have embryos test screened in the UK. Mm -hmm. would, would that be a correct yeah. statement? Yeah. yeah. And I think knowing the work we do in the US, I think it's quite common that screening like that is done in the US. Mm -hmm. because it, I a think, standard, really. A standard, but I think in the US, it's all about driven with success and success rates, and particular yeah. doctors, yeah. They're, they're all about the success rates, and that's how they're measured in the US. So we understand why yeah. they're so keen to have all of that testing in place because it does massively impact uh, their success rates. Whereas I think in the UK, it's not commonly used. It's quite expensive in the UK as well yeah. for that testing. So that's sometimes cost prohibitive for people. Yeah, but I also think that the knowledge isn't there for people to understand, you know, I think if you have, you know, a, a a condition that you want to potentially screen out you would know and you would potentially have access to those kind yeah. of services but I think if you just wanted to look at trying to manage success with your embryo creation and knowing which ones were going to have the best chance because they don't have you know the right level of chromosomes then I think it, you know a lot of people potentially might want to look at what that testing is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the differences really between the US and the UK um, would come down to regulation. Yeah. So we are very heavily regulated by the HFEA, quite rightly, because mm -hmm. they're there yeah, to absolutely. protect the patients and make sure that we are you know, offering treatments that are scientifically robust, mm -hmm. that we're not performing things unnecessarily. Yeah. It's an incredibly important framework to work within. And mm -hmm. certainly I would not want to work without the framework of the HFEA. In the States, they don't have that same regulation. Because of that, they are more easily able to offer additional services. So the HFEA are, again, 
quite rightly want patients to be aware of what clinics are offering them and they do have something um, called the HFEA traffic light system where a clinic were to offer an additional service for example genetic testing of an embryo they've given the efficiency of those particular techniques a color-coded rating now PGTA is currently color-coded as a red which means the HFEA do not recommend routine application. There is acknowledgement that for some patients it may be of benefit, but it's not something that they feel that the scientific evidence is sufficient to routinely offer to all patients. It is acknowledged that the um, application of PGTA is useful in reducing miscarriage, but what the large randomised controlled trials did not show was that they would increase the likelihood of having a live birth. Okay. Which is true. But you but could reduce the miscarriage. You could reduce the miscarriage. Which which still feels really important to me. I would not class reducing the risk of a miscarriage as a secondary outcome. No, not at all. For any for woman anyone. or couple <laughs> or intended parents who have gone through a miscarriage, yeah. it is an absolutely devastating um, totally. thing to have to deal with. Yeah. And from my perspective... If I have the tools at my disposal to prevent someone going through that, then I would like to do so. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think in the context of surrogacy, you know, where a set of intended parents are working with a surrogate, if, the, if those embryos are PGS tested, they, we know that the chrysomely normal. PGS, not PGS. I, I, I'm old school. <laughs> but uh, they know that they are chrysomely normal. Then what I talk about with IPC, it's all about, you know, vying for success. What can you do yeah. to increase your chances of success? And mm -hmm. knowing whether you're putting an embryo back, which is chrysomely normal, does stand a better chance, doesn't it? Yeah. You, you, you're, putting in, you, you, you're kind of dealing with information there, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, a healthy live birth outcome is going to come from an embryo that is chromosomally normal. Yeah. It's going to come from a euploid embryo. Small caveat to that, there is something called um, mosaicism to throw mm -hmm. into the mix. Yeah, I hear about this. Right. So when we're performing the embryo biopsy, which is what we need to do in the laboratory to test the embryo genetically, we need to take a small number of cells from the embryo. So we take it from the outer layer, which is called the trophectoderm, which are the cells that will contribute to placenta. And we leave the inner cell mass, which are the cells that contribute to fetus, undisturbed. When we take a handful of those trophectoderm cells, say six, seven, eight cells, and send them off to testing, it may be that we have some cells that come back as normal and some cells that come back as abnormal. So we've got a mixture, which is what we call a mosaic oh, okay. embryo. Now... There's different levels to mosaicism. You can have a low-level mosaic or a high-level mosaic. So a low-level mosaic would mean we have more normal cells than abnormal cells. Mm -hmm. And with the provision of the correct genetic counselling, it's possible to transfer those embryos. We wouldn't recommend the transfer of a high-level mosaic, which is one that has more abnormal cells. Okay. In the past, the differentiation between an abnormal and a normal embryo the lines were slightly blurred by the fact that we had this mosaicism so some of the hesitation from the um, sector in general with application of, of the PGT was there were instances where people would insist on transferring what we've called an abnormal embryo but it's gone on and given a live birth mm. mm -hmm. so the fear would be well how many of these embryos that we've said to a patient is 
abnormal mm-hmm. and that we have not transferred actually could have given a live birth. But the technologies that we have now to assess the genetics are so much more advanced and more robust now that that is no longer the issue that it had been previously. Because you can assess the ratio of abnormal and Absolutely. normal cells because yeah. of that later technology. Yeah, yeah. 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 I get you. That makes yeah. sense. Lucy, you mentioned just about uh, the biopsy on day five before, yeah. prior to freezer. Mm-hmm. And this blows my mind too, this biopsy part. So some people talk about retrospective testing. Yep. And we hear about your risk associated with the thaw of the embryo mm-hmm. retrospective biopsy. Yeah. Can you just kind of give us a bit of a, an overview of, you know, what the, what are the risks about yeah. retrospective testing? Because some people, it wasn't available to them or they didn't know about mm-hmm. it when they did it. And now they're at a different point in their journey and actually getting that information would, would be really critical to yeah. them. One thing that's really important to understand with the PGT is that it doesn't go on to result on a transfer on that cycle. So you would have your eggs collected, your embryos formed, um, you'd have your biopsy performed on your embryos and then the embryos would be frozen while we wait for the results to come round. So that's really important that patients are aware that if they are embarking on that, they do not have a transfer. Now you're quite right, patients um, can have embryos that have been frozen that have not been genetically tested, tested. But to do that, what we would need to do is we need to thaw the embryo, we then need to biopsy the embryo, we then need to refreeze the embryo while we wait for those results and then we need to thaw the embryo again. Embryos are not like chicken. You can refreeze. So if it has been thawed out already, you can refreeze those embryos more successfully. But every step of the way, we're performing more manipulation on the embryo. Yeah. There's more stress on the embryo. So there is a risk that the embryo may not survive the initial thawing to then do the biopsy, the biopsy itself, or the freeze and then the subsequent thaw. The same risk really does exist for embryos that are being tested whilst they are fresh at the point of creation. Again, not every embryo will survive the freezing and the thawing. Not every embryo will survive the biopsy. So that is a risk that you may not have embryos suitable for transfer after testing. That'll make sense. Something else to come to my mind as you're explaining that. You know, if someone is going through genetic screening on their route, so they're doing all the blood work, CGT plus, you know, our members. Extended screening. Extended screening, get access to that through my surrogacy journey. That's obviously looking for certain genes and genetic conditions. Mm-hmm. If someone, all parties, egg and sperm, are doing that, is there still a need for further genetic screening of the embryo? Is that just another test and more expense? Or are there gaps to continue doing further testing? That's a really good question. So with the CGT that we're performing on our egg and our sperm donors, um, what we're looking for is, is rare conditions. And what we want to see is that you're not a carrier for the same condition that your potential donor is also a carrier for. Yeah. Now, if you screen any of us sitting here, we will be a carrier for some form of recessive condition. That's completely normal. But what we don't want is obviously to pair a donor and a recipient that have the same particular recessive condition. Do you guys do the complete? No, we do. It's called CGC Plus, and I think it's 450 for 550. We don't do the, the full one, which is yeah. over 1,000. Yeah, because if you were doing the full one, Perhaps you could argue that the additional testing of the embryo is not necessary, but there, there is, is the risk there. Gap. Yeah. Okay. There is going to be gaps. That, I just wanted to understand that because that, that's so there's still potential mm-hmm. risk or there, there could still be conditions that aren't picked up in the ex- yeah. in extended. 
Lucy, earlier we talked about some acronyms. Let's mm-hmm. do a quick fire on some of these acronyms. <laughs> so uh, we, we, we hear a lot about ICSI and PIXI. Yep. And I think those are quite common ones that are out there. And I'm sure there are more that are not as mm-hmm. widely known. But would you mind just giving us a bit of an overview of, you know, for the listener, if they don't understand what ICSI or PIXI is, what are sure. they? So in the lab, we have different methods to put the sperm and the eggs together. Um, the method that we opt to use is predominantly dependent on the sperm parameters. So the three um, main ways would be, first of all, IVF, which is obviously the, the broad term that we, is being referred to when you have a treatment cycle, but it actually stands for in vitro fertilization. So with in vitro fertilization, what we're doing in the laboratory is if all of the sperm parameters are nice and normal, so we've got good number of sperm, good number that are swimming, shaped nicely, what we do is we purify um, a set concentration of the best sperm pop them in a dish with the egg and then we hope that overnight the sperm will fertilize that egg naturally so it will naturally swim and fertilize the egg for couples or individuals where perhaps sperm parameters are a little bit poorer so perhaps we have um, a lower number of sperm sperm that don't swim quite so well or we've got higher levels of abnormally shaped sperm we perform something called ICSI and that's intracytoplasmic sperm injection and if you see IVF on the news or whatever you see a picture of ICSI okay so it's the standard we've got an embryologist who is holding an egg with a glass pipette and then injecting a sperm in with another smaller glass pipette so that's ICSI. PIXI is a modification of the ICSI procedure and it's physiological intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Wow. <laughs> so the additional sperm selection step takes place with PIXI. Okay, so when a chap produces a sperm sample, we will have a mixture of sperm that are mature and a mixture of immature sperm. And when I'm looking down the microscope, I can't determine which is a uh, mature sperm and which is an immature sperm just based on their shape or based on how they're swimming. So they can look exactly the same. The importance is a sperm that is immature in either natural fertilization or in IVF can't fertilize an egg. So it hasn't completed its full development and it lacks the ability to fertilize. So it's like um, a lock and key in order for the sperm to be able to fertilize the egg, it needs to have like the correct receptors, which only the mature eggs do. Now, if we're performing ICSI, because I can't tell visually which is mature and which is immature, there is a risk that I may select an immature sperm. So this was a sperm that was never destined to fertilize an egg, but I can force it to because I'm injecting the sperm into the egg. I can force it to fertilize. I can have an embryo develop. But if an embryo is transferred or develops from an immature sperm, it's more likely to be poorer quality. And there is evidence to suggest that it's more likely to result in a miscarriage. So at Hearts and Essex, we perform something called HBA, hyaluron binding assay. And what this does, it allows us to distinguish how many of those sperm within the sperm sample are mature. Wow. Sperm are put into contact with um, a synthetic version of the coating around the egg or one of the components of the coating around the egg. And if the sperm is mature, it does this really cool thing where it beds its head down onto the glass slide and it pivots around its on its tail. It's the coolest thing ever. Trying to get in? Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's um, how you know which of the mature yeah. ones. Whereas Ooh. if, if it's... Like trying a, to drill itself in, yeah, basically. Yeah, that's exactly what it's trying to do. But whereas if it's an immature, it hasn't got the correct receptors. Oh, bless. Swims off, not interested. <laughs> so that's how we know and we can tell the difference between mature and immature. Oh so where, when we perform Pixie, we only select those sperm that are head down bedding in because wow. we know that they're mature. But again, I think it just goes to demonstrate that there's so many layers to embryology and so many layers to so cool. what can lead to success. Yeah, absolutely. It is cool. It is You're really cool, isn't it? it is just, <laughs> it is just really cool. It's the coolest. <laughs> one, one other thing that I really want to pick up, and I know that people, it kind of is something that people wonder about is embryo grading. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So yeah. would you mind just giving us a bit of a guide to embryo grading? Yeah. yeah. So traditionally... Um, how an embryologist would choose which embryo to transfer would be based on the shape and the appearance. We know that an embryo develops in quite a stereotypical pattern. So on the day of fertilisation, we've got one single cell. By day two, I want my embryo to have divided to have either two, three, four cells. By day three, again, we've had more division. We're looking at six, seven and eight cells. By the time we get to day four, the embryo starts to undergo a transitional phase of compaction. And then we get to the blastocyst stage on day five or day six. Because we use the closed culture, we're not looking at our embryos after fertilization. The first time point that we're grading our embryos would be on day five. So there's three things that we're looking at. And we've got um, a number and then two letters for the grading. So the first number refers to how mature or expanded and developed the blastocyst is. So within the centre of the uh, blastocyst, we have a cavity that forms. And as that cavity pushes, um, the larger the cavity, the higher the number. It gives us an indication of what stage of blastocyst development that, that embryo is. And it goes from one to six. I wouldn't really expect to see any embryos at six on day five because that means it's fully hatched out of the shell that surrounds it. But I have seen pregnancies from blastocyst grading at one all the way up to six. Mm -hmm. So the, the number gives us an, a tool to select which is the most mature blastocyst. Then we've got the two letters. Um, and that's just a moment in time, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Then we've got our two letters, which give us an indication of the quality of either the inner cell mass, which are a central ball of cells within the embryo, which go on to contribute to fetus or the trophectoderm, which are the cells, as I've mentioned, that surround um, the outer layer that go on to form the placenta. A typical grading scheme would run from A being top quality down to D and E, which would be much poorer or absent or degenerate. So we use a combination of letters and um, numbers um, to give the embryo the grade. That grading is used to distinguish between a patient's group of embryos, which is the strongest looking for transfer. Yeah. Yeah. So if I were to perform an embryo transfer and I'm saying to you, I've got an embryo that is a 2cc, it's on the poorer end of the spectrum, average to fair, but more leaning towards the poorer. But that doesn't mean that that embryo is not going to give rise to a pregnancy. And similarly, if I'm performing an embryo transfer with an embryo that I've graded as a 5AA, that again does not guarantee that you will go and give rise to a pregnancy. So a lot of our patients are quite hung up on what's my grade, what's my grade, what's yeah. my grade. Mm -hmm. What is really important that I convey to my patients is I have selected for you the strongest embryo from your cohort, the one that is most likely based on appearance to give rise to a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. 
it doesn't necessarily reflect whether it will or not mm -hmm. um, based on the grading. Interesting. And do other clinics or other embryologists grade differently? Or is, or is that the standard is way? Like that a universal grading system? Yeah, so the standard grading system for embryos would be to grade a blastocyst in that manner. Yeah. The majority of clinics within the UK subscribe to something called the NEQAS scheme. With NEQAS, what we're doing is we have every clinic that's involved in the scheme is sent some images of embryos and we all have to grade them. And then we submit our results to mm. NEQAS to make sure that we are all grading. Aligned. Aligned, exactly, exactly. Cool, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't realise that there's so much, obviously science behind it, but there's so, so much of a joined up approach to ensure that there's the consistency mm -hmm. of Absolutely. the grading across everyone's uh, clinic. So sex selection, gender selection, mm -hmm. whatever term people are using. So that's not possible in the UK. It's illegal. Yeah. Yeah. Tell Unless, us, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Unless there is a genetic condition that we are screening for that is linked either to the X chromosome or the Y chromosome, mm -hmm. in which point we will have to know the... The um, chromosome of the embryo. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So if somebody says to me, I really want a boy, that's great. But unfortunately, yeah. as much as the technology exists for me to be able to test, I'm not doing it. <laughs> yeah. Understood. Um, it's, there's so many things that I still want to ask, but I'm conscious that we, this is going to be a, just one more quick for you. I hear, I hear a lot about embryo glue. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about yep. embryo glue. So embryo glue is also classed as an add-on by the HFEA, but it's amber, uh, which means there is more evidence to support its clinical application and its benefits. Embryo glue, we're not sticking anything into place. It's not a Pritt stick or a super glue. <laughs> what it is, is a special medium that we use within the laboratory um, that is rich in something called hyaluron, which is thought to um, more closely mimic the uterine environment. So the theory behind it is that we prime the embryo in the environment into which it should mm -hmm. hopefully go which on makes sense. and stick. Yeah. So yeah, it's something that we would use um, in the laboratory. It's an option for the patient. It's just a slightly different form of culture media. It wouldn't change the process in terms of embryo transfer for the patient. But certainly it's something that we are able to offer our patients um, should they wish to go for. Amazing. I feel like there's been so much covered. So much. Not even what we've got written down in front no, of us. No, but this is, this is always the way, isn't it? And I think for me, the information that you've talked through, Lucy, and all of the kind of the different elements of embryo creation on all of the components, you know, if the listener didn't know a lot of that stuff when they started oh listening to this podcast, gosh, they should do by, <laughs> by now, because I think we have covered lots and lots of ground. And I personally yeah. think it has been really, really useful. This and is going to be one of those episodes where we refer so many members and people back to this particular episode, because this was really helpful. Oh, Lucy. well, do you know what? Then absolutely fantastic, because that's as much as my, my job in terms of the, the hands-on is really, really important. The education um, so and the supporting patients yeah. is super important too. And this is probably why Hearts and Essex call you the queen of sperm, isn't it? That is, that is your <laughs> title that they give you at Hearts and Essex. I get rather excited about sperm. <laughs> <laughs> I can't lie. 
Kill me all. Um, <laughs> so the sperm queen is your official title. Yes, it is. Le- ne- mine, the laboratory director. I think, is, uh, yeah. No, I think we need to change the intro now. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Welcome the sperm queen. <laughs> no, Lucy, um, thank amazing. you so much. Thank that you. has been really no, useful. And I do think this episode is really going to help people be more educated and, and be more confident. You know, when they are talking to a clinic or they're talking to an embryologist, it's about having the ability to understand in a totally. really easy term about Absolutely. what, what mm-hmm. they're looking for and have more confidence to be able to ask yeah yeah absolutely that's what we're here for totally um, so anyways don't forget if you need your podcast fix we're back every Monday proudly sponsored by Hearts and Essex Fertility Centre one of the top performing fertility clinics in the UK and has some of the best success rates in the east of England if you want to find out more about My Surrogacy Journey then please head over to our website which is mysurrogacyjourney.com or find us on our Instagram at official My Surrogacy Journey. if you like this episode then please subscribe to the series and we will have another episode coming out every Monday Thank you for listening. We have been your My Surrogacy Journey podcast hosts. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.